Thank you, music team. What a, what a great prayer to start the Lord's Day, a new year. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Wilson Shirley. I'm the senior pastor here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, and every now and then I like to take time off, just like some of you. And so I'm thankful this week to have had a break, and thankful this morning that we are going to have the ministry of the Word to us from our own Mr. John Summers. Uh, John is a member of our congregation. John has some experience in a previous life uh, in the pulpit. Uh, John came to the session some months ago, uh, sensing a call to preach for what he feels is a gift uh, to share God's word. And so he uh, hopes to use that gift here from time to time, but also in our presbytery, helping churches who need pulpit supply. And so John is in the process of being licensed to preach in Providence Presbytery. And part of that is for him to come and to test our, his gifts before us. Uh, the session has heard him preached, and we attest to that gift, and we're delighted to have him come forward. And John, if you will, come and share God's word with us. Thank you. Our text this morning comes from Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, I believe this is page 947 in the church Bible, if you're using that this morning. We're going to begin our new year by hearing the message of these familiar verses. Most of you will know these. Let's read this text together, and then we're going to ask God this morning to help us understand these words. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us understand these words that you have spoken. And will you please apply these words to our hearts in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever studied Romans in any kind of depth, you will know that these verses are the beginning of a major shift in the emphasis of Paul's letter. Many Bible teachers characterize the first 11 chapters of Romans as the most most in-depth expression of Paul's gospel that's found in any of his letters. And then beginning in chapter 12, Paul begins describing how Christians ought to live in light of everything that he has said in the first 11 chapters of Romans. There's a very clear shift in emphasis at this point. We ought to note, however, that even though these verses are a major shift in Paul's emphasis, everything in these two verses has already been hinted at by Paul in the first 11 chapters. And in fact, The rest of Romans reflects what he says here at the beginning of chapter 12. We're going to see some of that as we go through this text this morning. Now, right off the bat, here in verse 1, 
we see the word therefore. Therefore. And we know that therefore is a key word that signals a shift in Paul's direction. But there's another phrase in this very first sentence that kind of links everything that Paul has said in the first 11 chapters with these two verses. Look at this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This phrase, the mercies of God, is actually the way that Paul summarizes everything that he has said in the first 11 chapters of Romans. The whole of Romans is about God's mercy to both Jews and Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's especially important if we would understand these two verses aright to understand what Paul means by the mercies of God specifically in chapters 9 through 11. Chapters 9 through 11 contain Paul's explanation of how the nation of Israel and the Gentiles fit into the overarching purposes of God in the storyline of the entire Bible. Fundamentally, with the coming of Jesus Christ, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. Both Jew and Gentile can receive mercy from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we see this idea of God's mercy popping up in these chapters. You don't need to turn to these passages, but let me give you a quick sampling of what we're talking about. Chapter 9, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 9, 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills. 9, 23, God has made known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And then over in chapter 11, verses 30 through 32, for as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And this last sentence here is a summation of the gospel that Paul has been explaining in the first 11 chapters. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. All have sinned, whether you are Jew or Gentile, you have sinned. But all have received mercy, whether Jew or Gentile, by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And so when Paul says right here at the beginning of our text, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, we are to understand that God's mercy in Jesus Christ, as explained by Paul up to this point in the letter, is the foundation of everything that he will say in our two verses this morning. Romans 12, 1 and 2 contain a summary of what the Christian life looks like. It's not the only summary in Scripture. Jesus summarizes the Christian life as loving God and loving neighbor. Peter summarizes the Christian life as one of proclaiming the excellencies of God. These verses are providing us with yet another summary of what Christian living is all about. And these verses teach us that Christians to the mercy that they have received in Jesus Christ by laying themselves on the altar before God in complete submission to Him. Christians must be living sacrifices acceptable to God. So three points this morning. One, Christians must become living sacrifices. Two, 
how Christians become living sacrifices. And then three, the result of becoming a living sacrifice. If you will, these verses are the what, how, and why of the Christian life. So first, Christians must become living sacrifices. Look here in verse 1. Paul says, essentially, in light of the mercy you and I have received in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I implore you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The way Paul expresses himself here might be a bit odd at first blush. People don't generally offer sacrifices that are alive. Before the coming of Jesus Christ, when Israel had to offer animal sacrifices on the altar to atone for sins, the animal presented on the altar was slaughtered before it was offered. The animal offered had to be ceremonially clean. It couldn't have any defects. It had to be holy in order to be acceptable. But the animal was still dead when it was offered to God. It had to die to atone for sin. But here, Paul says that the Christian life is one where we place ourselves on the altar before God alive. And Paul's trying to show us in very vivid, sacrificial language that the Christian life is one of offering everything about ourselves to God. God wants your heart. But it's not just your heart that He wants. He wants your entire self. He wants your heart, your hands, your brain, your eyes, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your words, your family, your home, your career, your aspirations, your future plans, your hopes, your dreams, everything about yourself, everything that makes you who you are is to be laid before God on the altar as holy and acceptable to Him. We present our bodies, he says, our entire selves to God as a living sacrifice. This is not the first time in Romans that Paul speaks of Christians presenting their entire bodies to God. The command to present our bodies to God in holiness is all over Romans chapter 6. Again, you don't need to turn to these, but you can write them down and refer to them later if you like. Chapter 6, verse 13, do not present your members, that is your body, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The Christian life is one of presenting your entire self on the altar to God in holiness. Now, Paul says something else very interesting at the end of verse 1 about this self-sacrifice. We might not think this way most of the time, but notice what he says. This complete giving of ourselves to God is actually how we worship Him. Isn't that interesting? In the Old Testament, Israel worshipped God in the way he prescribed through the giving of animal sacrifices. And the various services that the priests performed were services of worship. And Paul extends that idea into the Christian life. And he says, this offering of yourself to God on the altar in holiness is how you worship. If you're reading out of the King James this morning, your translation will say something like reasonable service. 
But the idea is the same. Offering yourself on the altar before God is worship. For Paul, worship is not limited to the Sunday morning gathering. Now, what we do here on Sunday mornings certainly is worship. It is perfectly appropriate for us to view ourselves as coming before God together as a church for worship. But we ought not think that somehow we are more in the presence of God on Sunday mornings when we meet together than we are during the rest of the week. We are not indwelt by the Spirit more on Sunday mornings than on other days. Our whole lives, insofar as they are laid before God as a fragrant offering, constitute worship. So what does a life of living sacrifice look like? What will our lives look like if we have laid them on the altar to God? And Paul doesn't leave us in the dark about how to apply this truth. Write it down as a, as a nice Bible reading rule. When you're looking for an application of a Bible text, very often you can go to the Bible to find the application itself. The rest of chapter 12 through chapter 15 is all about the practical ways in which we lay ourselves on the altar day by day. And though Paul instructs us in those chapters about how to live sacrificially to God in our individual lives, his emphasis is very interesting in those chapters. He's especially interested to instruct us about how we live sacrificially to God and to one another in the church. So in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, we learn that Christians must exercise their spiritual gifts for the good of the church. We don't have an option as to whether or not we will serve the church with the particular abilities God has given us. God has given them to us for the good of the body. We're to sacrificially give ourselves to our brothers and sisters. 9 through 21 of chapter 12, this is Paul kind of rapid firing on what this truth looks like. Among other things, he says we're to love our brothers and sisters with sincerity. We're not to fake it with each other. We're to rejoice in hope. We're to be patient in suffering. We're to be constant in prayer. We are to contribute materially to the needs of our brothers and sisters. We're not to take vengeance. We're to bless those who curse us. We're to live peaceably with each other. We're a church, which means we're all broken sinners. That means that we have to be patient with each other, even when we are aggravating one another. We put our desires on the altar. We're to do good when others are doing evil to us. Then you get to chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. These verses tell us that we're to sacrificially submit to the government no matter who's in charge because God is the one who's put them there. We're not allowed to cheat on our taxes. 13, 8 through 14, living to God means we follow the Ten Commandments. We love each other. We don't engage in any kind of immorality. We don't quarrel with each other. We're not to be jealous of one another. We make no provisions for the flesh. And then in chapters 14 and 15, we learn that what sacrificial living looks like is to accept those who differ with us in inconsequential matters of the faith. And we are to work to be at peace with them. We forego our own rights if exercising those rights means that a brother or sister violates their conscience and sins before God. This is what laying ourselves on the altar before God looks like. It means we strive for holiness in every area of our lives. 
We love, we serve, we're patient with our brothers and sisters, we put their interests before our own. And that's how Paul applies the teaching of verse 1. Now, second point, how do we do this? Or maybe the better question is, how do you and I begin to, do, to live like this? Because the command for us is to lay ourselves on the altar. And when we look at our lives, we realize we, most of us don't even do that. With our selfish hearts, it is very, very hard for us to give over control of everything about ourselves to God and say, it's yours. So how do Christians begin to develop an attitude whereby we joyfully give ourselves to God in service to Him and to one another? And the answer is at the beginning of verse 2. We begin to lay ourselves on the altar when we change how we think. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We will begin to have the strength that it takes to give ourselves up in service to God when we stop letting the thought patterns of the world shape our minds and instead we let God renew our minds. As one preacher has put it, we must learn to think God's thoughts after Him. Romans has a good bit to say about the contrast between how non-Christians and Christians think. Hold your finger at Romans 12 and turn over to Romans 1. Romans 1 contains a description of humanity in rebellion against God. That's how Paul begins the letter, or his argument in the letter. And what is fascinating about this description in Romans 1 is that Paul shows how radical rebellion against God actually begins with wrong thinking. Look at this, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now listen to this. For although they knew God... They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see what Paul is saying? God has clearly revealed Himself in the creation, in the things that He's made. But humanity has decided that it knows better than God and that uh, it wants to think differently than God has intended for it to think. And under the guise of being wise, humanity has devolved into idolatry. So Paul says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then you see down in verse 28 what this idolatry leads to. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to what? A debased mind. A debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And you can read the rest of this description as to what a debased mind does. 
it's ugly. Wrong thinking leads to horrible, ugly sin. And this is how we think in our natural rebellion against God before being changed by Jesus Christ. This is how the worldly non-Christian thinks continually. And this is why Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not think like the world thinks. As we read this morning in 1 John 2, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's all that's in the world. Don't think like the world thinks. Turn over to Romans 8 quickly. And and we'll see this even more clearly stated a bit more succinctly. Look in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh do what? Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You see that? The worldly mind is set on the flesh, and it cannot please God. However, a renewed mind is a mind that is set on the spirit. The renewed mind, though not perfectly, is able to place itself on the altar before God in submission. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So how does the world think? We saw that a little bit in Romans 1, but how does the world think? What does the voice of the world sound like? And how do we find ourselves tempted to think when the world is creeping into our thoughts? If you want to know how the world thinks, all you really have to do is listen to the thoughts that run through your own head before you sin. You can also simply listen to unbelievers just talk. Out of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. So some of the things that the world thinks are like this. You know, you really should work to advance your career, even if that means neglecting your family. After all, you're really making all of that money for them. That thought pattern is the precursor to greed and covetousness, which leads to broken relationships. The other side of that coin is I'm not interested in working a particular job that supports my family because it isn't my dream job. That's the precursor to not caring for your own, 1 Timothy 5. You know, if your spouse isn't meeting your needs in the way that you think they ought, it's okay for you to look elsewhere for those needs. Marriage is about being in love. You've got to live your life in a way that makes you happy, and that's the thought pattern that leads to adultery in both thought and deed. It's fun to talk about somebody else, even when we're only speculating about the truth. It makes the conversation so much more fun. And that's the thought pattern that leads to gossip and slander. This is how the world thinks. The world presents sin in a way that doesn't make it sound all that bad. Or it makes sin sound like even the right thing to do. Or it even makes sin sound like the intelligent thing to do. And really all that is is an echo of what he did in the garden. Did God really say? You will be wise if you eat this fruit. Sinning, violating God's will, is actually 
the right thing to do in this situation. It will lead to your happiness. We're so foolish and silly when we listen to the worldly thoughts in our head and then we obey those worldly thoughts that come into our head. And Paul says in Romans quite clearly, wrong thinking leads into sin. Rather, he says here in verse 2, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to change how we think. We're to think the way God wants us to think. And that means we understand that God knows what He's talking about when He tells us that the legitimate purpose of making more and more money is actually to give more away. Our spouses have been given to us by God. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. We see God's wisdom in telling us not to commit adultery. We see and understand the hurt that is caused by gossiping and slandering people behind their backs. How does the transformed mind think? Philippians 4.8 Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What are you thinking about all the time? Start thinking God's thoughts after Him in the power of the Spirit and more and more of your life will wind up on His altar. Third point, quickly. When by God's mercy we place ourselves on the altar and we change how we think, what is the result? Look at the end of verse 2. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says that right thinking enables us to determine God's will for us. This is astounding. We get to know the will of God. But notice, Paul does not say that we receive some sort of extra-biblical revelation of God's will. He doesn't imply that knowledge of God's will is some strong felt stirring within us quite apart from the revealed will of God. No. What does he say? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. In other words, when our minds are transformed and we are thinking rightly, we have godly wisdom. Wisdom that enables us to determine God's will in all kinds of situations. Wisdom that enables us to approve what God approves as good and acceptable and perfect. One of the best explanations I've ever heard of the relationship between spirit-filled wisdom and the knowledge of God's will for us on a daily basis actually comes from J.I. Packer's very famous book, Knowing God. And it's in his chapter entitled, Thou Our Guide. If somebody was to ask me for some direction on cerning on discerning the will of God for their lives, I think I would direct them to that chapter in Packer's book. Because Packer is echoing Paul's teaching here, and he emphasizes that discerning God's will has more to do with thinking about moral choices rather than the so-called vocational decisions that many Christians tend to get hung up on when trying to discern God's will. And by that I mean, should I marry this or that person? Should I take this or that job? Should I take this course of action or another? All good questions and things we ought to seek God on. But that's not the emphasis of what Paul is saying here. Listen to Packer. 
The basic form of divine guidance, therefore, is the presentation to us of positive ideals as guidelines for all our living. Be the kind of person that Jesus was. Seek this virtue and this one and this and practice them up to the limit. Know your responsibilities. Husbands to your wives, wives to your husbands, parents to your children, all of you to your fellow Christians and all your fellow men, know them and seek strength constantly to discharge them. This is how God guides us through the Bible. Then he goes on. Be it noted that the reference to being led by the Spirit in Romans 8.14 relates not to inward voices or any such experience, but to mortifying known sin and not living after the flesh. And then when he begins to discuss common ways that Christians go wrong in discerning God's will, guess what he lists as the very first thing that Christians tend to do? An unwillingness to think. And he says, it is false piety, super supernaturalism of an unhealthy or pernicious sort that demands inward impressions that have no rational base and declines to heed the constant biblical summons to consider. God made us thinking beings, and He guides our minds as in His present we think things out, not otherwise. Deuteronomy 32, Oh, that they were wise, that they would consider. And Packer's merely expanding on Paul's point here at the end of verse 2. When you are thinking the things of the Spirit, you have the ability to discern God's will for your life. And the concern is not so much with vocational issues, although He certainly helps us think through those things. Rather, we have the power of a Spirit-changed mind to know the moral courses of action we ought to take in all kinds of circumstances. So if you're coming to a crossroads in your financial future, what is God's will for you right now in that situation? Well, has God promised to take care of you financially? Yes. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Has He commanded you to have patience in all circumstances? Yes, we read it this morning. Guess what God's will for you is at this time? For you to wait patiently. You have a situation with one of your children and you don't know what God's will for you in that situation is? Let me recommend exercising and beginning to exercise godly wisdom. Drink deeply of God's statements throughout all Scripture about how parents relate to children. Start asking other brothers and sisters for their views. That's what wisdom does. It seeks out advice. Godly wisdom seeks that out. And when you do this, what Paul is promising here is that you and I will begin to see how God would have us deal with our children or with any kind of relationship that we have a problem with. I wish we had more time for this because there's so much more that could be said with respect to discerning God's will, but we're going to stop here. Paul teaches us in these verses that the Christian life is one of, our, of offering ourselves to God in complete sacrifice. And the way we begin to do this is by changing how we think. And when we change how we think, we have the wisdom needed to determine God's will for our lives. Let's pray. And as we bow our heads, let us consider how these verses apply in our own particular situation right now. What part of our lives have we not laid on the altar and need to lay on the altar 
How do we need to change how we're thinking? And what areas do we need wisdom to determine God's will for us? Father, would you take these words and apply them to our hearts, enabling us to place our entire selves on the altar before you. In Jesus' name, amen.